Spiritual depression comes upon us all. Its possible causes are many, so how can a Christian seek to get out of it? In the story of Elijah, we have a good example of how God deals with the spiritually low. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're in an expositional study of the life of Elijah. In today's passage, we'll see how God gently restores Elijah when he was in a serious spiritual low. Well, Phil, today you will explore some of the spiritual causes of depression. Can you give us an idea of what those causes were for Elijah and uh, what they may be for the contemporary Christian as well? Well, Mark, I think as we look at the scriptures today, we see Elijah getting into a spiritually depressed condition, partly because he was only telling himself half of the truth. It was true. He had done a lot of things to serve the Lord, but not as many things as he really thought he had done. And it was true that he was in a difficult situation with a lot of opposition, but the situation wasn't nearly as desperate as he made it out to be. And rather than speaking the whole truth about what God was doing in and through Elijah's life, he was only speaking half of the truth. And as a result, we see these attitudes, self-righteousness, thinking that he had done more for God than he really had, self-pity, feeling sorry for himself, and self-importance, as if he's the most important person in Israel. And when we fall into those same attitudes, we very quickly are going to be discouraged and maybe even spiritually depressed. Well, since these things can be so subtle, how can we tell when we're guilty of these attitudes ourselves, and what can we do about them? Well, Mark, I think in both cases, the answer is the gospel and speaking the gospel to ourselves on a daily basis. Because when we speak the gospel, we're telling the truth about our own sinfulness and our own need for grace, but in a powerful way, we're also seeing the salvation that God has for us in Christ. And that delivers us from self-righteousness. We don't have to build ourselves up by looking at our own good works. We can just have confidence in what Jesus has done. And it's also the answer for self-pity, because we are not so much thinking about ourselves in our own situation as we are looking to God and to His grace. And so I want to encourage you, encourage myself, encourage our listeners today for our own spiritual encouragement to preach ourselves the whole gospel. Okay, thanks, Phil. Let's turn in our Bibles now to 1 Kings chapter 19 and listen to God's Word for us today. Then stay tuned to find out how you can get a free copy of Dr. Riken's new book. I could preach with fervor and power. I could share Christ with enthusiasm and success. I would counsel with meaningful insight and socialize with sheer delight. But without warning, any or all of these positive and delightful emotions would suddenly be forced to give way to feelings of gloom and periods of weakness. I would withdraw, and a form of paranoia would settle in. I would suddenly be overwhelmed with feelings of inadequacy and inferiority. On occasion, I toyed with thoughts of self-destruction. The struggle reached its inevitable climax when I found myself too weary to minister, too filled with hostility to love, and too frightened to preach. Those are the words of the Reverend Don Baker in his book, Depression, Finding Hope and Meaning in Life's Darkest Shadow. 
But they could just as well be the words of the prophet of Elijah, could they not? Elijah, too, experienced feelings of gloom, inadequacy, self-destruction, and fear. Once again, we have heard the words of Mendelssohn's bitter Elijah in song. It is enough, O Lord, now take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. I desire to live no longer. Now let me die, for my days are but vanity. Elijah is still depressed. He was depressed back in the desert, and he is still depressed up on the mountain. He was depressed under the broom tree, and he is still depressed in the cave. If you were here with us for our first study in the first part of 1 Kings 19, to which I invite you to turn, you will remember that when Elijah arrived at Beersheba, he was suicidal. That wicked Queen Jezebel had promised to put him to death, and so Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He went out into the desert. He sat down under a broom tree, and he begged for death. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. We saw then how graciously God dealt with Elijah. The Lord did not rebuke him, but touched him and fed him and watered him. And so that Elijah discovered that when he had had enough, God was for him more than enough. Now we might expect Elijah to have been refreshed by that experience of the grace of God. We might expect him to have recovered the joy of his salvation. But that is not what happened. Elijah is not refreshed. He is still depressed. Forty days later, and he is still down in the dumps. And you can practically taste the bile in his throat when he complains to God. I have been very zealous for the Lord. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. Are you surprised that this great man of God is still depressed? You shouldn't be. Spiritual depression is hard to shake. It is not a 24-hour virus. If you are struggling with spiritual depression, your pastor cannot just say to you, take two Bible verses and call me in the morning. Spiritual depression lingers. Even the godliest of the godly can become so discouraged that it takes them months to return to useful service for the Lord. And that in itself ought to be an encouragement for us this morning. In this passage, we find the greatest of saints reduced to the blackest of moods. And he is not condemned for his depression. But he is called back into active service for God. If God's grace was sufficient for Elijah, then it can be sufficient for you as well. Now, before we can be refreshed with the sufficiency of God's grace, we need to see why Elijah was so discouraged in the first place. When we studied the first part of this chapter, we learned that depression can have a variety of causes, both physical and social, as well as spiritual. But today we want to focus on the spiritual aspects of depression. For Elijah, spiritual depression was a result of 
telling himself too many half-truths. The Scripture says that after Elijah ate and drank, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. I think I know what Elijah was doing during those 40 days and 40 nights. He was rehearsing. Elijah was mentally rehearsing the angry speech he would give to God. Over and over again, he was practicing what he would say to the Lord when he had the chance. So by the time he arrives in Horeb, Elijah has told himself so many half-truths, he is starting to believe them. You can see that he has his little speech down pat in verse 10, and then he gives the exact same speech word for word in verse 14. Even after he has witnessed a theophany, a powerful demonstration of the presence of the living God, he is still singing the same old tune. Whenever God presses Elijah's play button, the same recording of his complaint comes out. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. I am the only one left, and so on. Now, all of the things that Elijah says are half-truths. The trouble with half-truths is that they are also half-falsehoods. Elijah was feeding himself a steady diet of lies, the kind of lies that contribute to spiritual depression. Spiritual depression is sustained and nourished by the kinds of things that we teach and preach to ourselves. Elijah was preaching to himself the half-truths of self-righteousness, self-pity, and self-importance. First, self-righteousness. Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Now, there was a time when Elijah could have gotten away with saying that. Who has been zealous like Elijah? Zeal was just the word for him. Elijah was the one who shut up the rain in the heavens through prayer. He pronounced God's judgment upon Ahab's kingdom. He entrusted himself to ravens. He raised the widow's son from the dead. He taunted Baal and put the prophets of Baal to the sword. Elijah has been zealous for the Lord, very zealous. But he is zealous no longer. Now the zeal of Elijah is only a half-truth at best. What has he done for God lately? Not much. Let's see, he panicked under the threats of Jezebel. He ran away from his calling, he prayed to God for death, and then he fled to Horeb. If Elijah is zealous about anything these days, he is zealous about saving his own neck. So when Elijah says that he is very zealous, he is being self-righteous. He is full of himself. He thinks he is really something, spiritually speaking. He has an exaggerated view of his personal godliness. Now, this kind of self-righteousness is a constant temptation for the believer. You experience some work of the Lord's grace in your heart. Then when you look back at how far you have come in the Christian life, you feel pretty good about the progress you have made. But you see, at just the time that all of our other sins are shriveling and dying, spiritual pride can grow like kudzu. You become smug about your spiritual accomplishments. You see, Elijah thought he was zealous, but he was only zealous by half. 
One sign that Elijah is not quite as zealous as he thinks he is comes at the end of verse 9. God asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? There is a strong rebuke in that question. If Almighty God has occasion to ask you why you are where you are, then you are not where you are supposed to be. The end of this passage, the Lord will tell Elijah, and this comes in verse 15, go back the way you came. After walking with God for so many years, Elijah has decided to step out on his own. And that means that when he comes to his senses, he will have some backtracking to do. I wonder if there is anyone here this morning who is running away from God. The Lord spoke to you this morning. Would he have the same question for you that he had for Elijah? What are you doing here? Why are you still trapped in this sin? Why are you still caught up in this particular relationship? If God needs to tell you to go back the way you came, then you had better start heading back the way you came. Now, by mentioning his zeal to the Lord, Elijah was asking for special treatment. You see, he thought he deserved better. He thought God owed him something. I wonder if you ever tell God that you deserve better. You ever tell God that you ought to be exempt from the flu or from car trouble or from corporate downsizing or from whatever troubles you face in your life? That kind of self-righteous attitude increases your bitterness towards God. Self-righteousness feeds spiritual depression. Here is another half-truth that feeds spiritual depression. Self-pity. Elijah complains, The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And now they are trying to kill me too. There is some truth in those statements. They may even be more than half true. You can find each of these ideas back in chapter 18. The Israelites have rejected God's covenant. Elijah told Ahab, verse 18, you have abandoned the Lord's commands. And it's true, the Israelites have broken down God's altars. You remember when Elijah went up on Mount Carmel to offer his sacrifice, he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Verse 30, and the Israelites have put God's prophets to death with the sword. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves. All those things were true, but they were not true anymore. Once again, Elijah is using his selective memory. He is forgetting what the Israelites have done. They have turned their hearts back to God. You remember when fire fell from heaven to consume Elijah's sacrifice, they put their faces in the dust and returned to covenant worship. They shouted, the Lord, he is God. And now the altar has been rebuilt, at least at Mount Carmel. And instead of putting God's prophets to death with the sword, the Israelites have seized the prophets of Baal and slaughtered them in the Kishon Valley. So what Elijah says is no longer true. He does not recognize that God has been at work. He is telling himself that things are worse than they actually are. He is feeling sorry for himself. His self-pity especially comes out in the last line of his speech. Now they are trying to kill me too. Well, at least Elijah is right about that, isn't he? 
Isn't it true that they are trying to put him to death? After all, this chapter began with that nasty telegram Jezebel sent to Elijah. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. True? Or only half true? Notice the pronoun Elijah uses. They are trying to kill me too. Jezebel is the one trying to kill him, not all Israel. Elijah has turned she into they. He has turned a queen into a whole nation. He is nursing his sense of self-pity by magnifying his troubles. That's the way spiritual depression often works. It often includes an element of self-pity. Self-pity exaggerates one's problems. It insists that the problems of one's life are so overwhelming that they cannot be solved. Self-righteousness, self-pity, and then self-importance. Here is a third half-truth. I am the only one left. Elijah is now holding an egotistical little pity party. No guests are invited, of course, because the whole point is that Elijah has no one to invite. I am the only one. No one understands me. No one has ever gone through what I am going through. No one can help me. It is true that Elijah is left, but he is not the only one left. It is wonderful how God sets the record straight. Yet, God says at the end of verse 18, By the way, Elijah, one more thing before I let you go. I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. Elijah was a little bit off in his calculations. In terms of raw numbers, he had underestimated the strength of the people of God by 6,999. He had miscalculated by a factor of 7,000. What he said was not a half-truth. It was, I suppose, a one-seven-thousandth truth. You see, Elijah is exaggerating his own importance in God's purposes. He is trying to do it all himself. He speaks as if the fate of God's people depended entirely upon him. He has forgotten that all God's servants are expendable, that there is always someone else who can do the Lord's work. Well, no wonder Elijah is discouraged. He has been feeding himself a steady diet of half-truths. He is claiming that he is too godly and too important to suffer so greatly. His example reminds us that spiritual depression can be selfish. I deserve better than this. I can't take it anymore. I am the only one. Elijah is full of such self-righteousness, self-pity, and self-importance. And if you have been struggling with spiritual depression, then it is important to figure out what you have been preaching to yourself. Have you been telling yourself things like this? I deserve better than this. I can't take it anymore. My problems can't be solved. Nobody understands me or loves me or cares for me. I am the only one. If that is what you have been telling yourself, then it comes as no real surprise that you are discouraged. 
Spiritual depression is a vampire that feeds upon the lies in the half-truths that we preach to ourselves. What you need to do, what every Christian needs to do, is to preach the gospel to yourself every day. You need to be filling your mind and your heart with thoughts like these. I am a very great sinner, but Christ is an even greater Savior. My problems are more than I can solve, but Jesus Christ can solve them. My troubles are more than I can bear, but Jesus can lift me up and my problems with me. God understands me. Jesus Christ loves me with an everlasting love. The Holy Spirit comforts me. I am not the only one. You see, if spiritual depression is full of self, then the only way out of it is by the grace of God. What we find in this passage of Scripture is that God gives Elijah at least three great truths about himself. Not half-truths, but truths with a capital T. God shows himself to Elijah as faithful in the past, sovereign over the future, and gentle in the present. The Scripture says that Elijah traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There is an echo in this verse from Exodus 3 where Moses led his flock and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. It was at Horeb that Moses met God in the fire of the burning bush. It was on that same mountain covered with lightning and smoke and trembling from earthquakes that Moses received the commandments of God. Forty days and forty nights Moses spent with God on the mountain. It was on that same mountain, known also as Mount Sinai, that Moses encountered the glory of God. The scripture tells how Moses asked if he could see the glory of God. It tells how Moses was not allowed to see the glory of God, since no one can see the face of God and live. So God put Moses in a cleft in the rock, and he covered him with his hand until he passed by. And then at the last moment, he removed his hand to allow Moses to see just the back of his glory. And so when Elijah went up Mount Horeb, he received so many reminders of the faithfulness of God in the past. He became like a second Moses. He went to the mountain of God. He went to the mountain where God established his covenant and where God spoke to his prophets and where God revealed his very presence. There, the Lord told Elijah what he had once told Moses. Verse 11, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. It is striking that in verse 9, the scripture says that Elijah went into the cave. Not just any old cave, but the cave, a definitely specified cave. And well may we wonder if Elijah hid in that same cleft in the rock where Moses hid before him. In any case, God was reminding Elijah of his faithfulness in the past. And by doing so, God was giving Elijah a recall 
He was calling him out of his self-imposed retirement and back into active prophetic service. And there is a lesson here for us. If you are spiritually depressed, remember God's faithfulness in the past. Recount the many ways in which God has protected you and preserved you. Continue to read your Bible. Someone may say, but I don't feel like reading my Bible. I suppose that is like a sick person refusing to drink fluids until he or she is healthy. If you have the flu, you do not wait until you feel better to drink your juice. You drink your juice in order to get better. In the same way, the Christian in spiritual depression does not wait for a hunger for God and for a hunger for God's word to return. He or she continues to read and to hear the Bible. And he or she does so in order to be reminded of God's faithfulness in the past. God is also sovereign over the future. That is another great truth that helps us when we are discouraged. The instructions God gives to Elijah in verses 15 and following show that he is still in charge. God is still in control of the nations. First, he tells Elijah to go to the desert of Damascus and to anoint Hazael, king over Aram. God is the one who sets the rulers upon their thrones, and so it is right for his prophet to anoint the next king of that pagan land. God also has a king in mind for his own people, so he tells Elijah to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. The political situation in the Middle East may have seemed like a complete mess, But God had not lost control. He had people in mind to rule and to govern. God is also sovereign over the destiny of his people spiritually. He already has a successor in mind for Elijah. And so he instructs him to anoint Elisha to be a prophet. Plus, he has reserved 7,000 righteous souls in Israel for himself. This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints in action. God is the one who preserves a remnant for salvation, even down to the present day. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in Romans 11. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed down the knee to Baal. So too... At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. You see, God is sovereign over the future, both for all the nations and for his own people whom he is protecting and preserving. And so one by one, the half-truths of Elijah's depression are being replaced by the total truths of God's grace. We see by the time God is finished giving his instructions, Elijah is back on his feet and he is busy for the Lord. We see this in verse 19, Elijah goes. You see, Elijah's depression has been replaced by active hope. The same grace is available for you. Draw strength from God's faithfulness in the past and hope from God's sovereignty over the future. Things are not as hopeless as they seem. God is still in charge. There is plenty to do and plenty of help to do it. And then finally, rest in God's gentleness in the present. God may not always seem gentle. 
He may not have seemed very gentle when he gave that spectacular demonstration of his power to Elijah. Scripture says that a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. In my mind's eye, I have often imagined Elijah standing on Mount Horeb, his face exposed to the elements, his beard flapping in the wind. That is not the right picture at all. In verse 11, the Lord invited Elijah to go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. But Elijah declined that invitation. When God revealed his presence, Elijah was shaking in his sandals. He was as far back in the cave as he could get. I suppose he was willing to play hide-and-seek with God, but not peekaboo. It is only in verse 13 that Elijah goes and stands at the mouth of the cave. You see from the scriptures that he would not even dare to step one foot outside that cave. And what is so ironic about Elijah's fear is that he has often boasted in the past about standing in the presence of God. Back in chapter 17, verse 1, he told King Ahab that he served the Lord. That's what the scripture says, the God of Israel whom I serve. Literally, what he said was the Lord before whom I stand. He said the same thing to Obadiah in chapter 18, verse 15. Now, Elijah does not seem to be quite as comfortable standing before the Lord as he made it seem to Ahab and Obadiah. Be very careful how you speak about the closeness of your relationship with the Lord. When Jesus Christ comes in all his glory, he will put that intimacy to the test. Now, as Elijah stands trembling in the shadow of the cave, he has his cloak pulled over his face I suppose that when he performed his little speech for the second time, it must have been a little muffled. I think it is a rather pathetic picture, one of the greatest of all the prophets skulking in the shadow of a cave, his cloak thrown over his head like a Halloween ghost. And I think the point is that anything more than a gentle God was too much for Elijah to bear. God is the God of wind, earthquake, and fire. Sometimes his spirit is in the wind, rushing and blowing about the earth. Sometimes God is in the earthquake, shaking the earth to show his power. Sometimes he is in the fire, like at Mount Carmel, when fire fell from heaven to consume the sacrifice. But there are times when all of that is too much for a human being to bear. There are times when the power of God is a terrible thing. Sometimes, sometimes you just want to know that God is your friend. After the fire came a gentle whisper. Here the King James Version has that beautiful phrase, the still, small voice. The commentators cannot agree upon what that familiar phrase means. 
All we have in Scripture is the story without an interpretation given. To some, it speaks of revelation. God is not only revealed in nature, but by his word. To others, it speaks of God's work. The kingdom of God does not advance in signs and wonders usually, but in quiet obedience. To still others, it speaks of preaching the law before the gospel. To me, the still small voice means that we can have friendship with God. From earliest days, this passage has spoken to me of intimacy with God. God is so glorious that one glance would obliterate us. He is so mighty, so windy and fiery that his mere presence sends us to the back of the cave. But then he speaks to us in a still, small voice, and we have the courage to come to the mouth of the cave. He whispers to us as a friend with a friend. Do you know the God of the still, small voice? I quoted before from a book on spiritual depression by Don Baker. This is what Baker writes about the restoration of his intimacy with God. Like Elijah, I felt that I had been exceptionally zealous for the Lord. I had worked diligently at tearing down the false altars to the false gods. I was accustomed to the great and strong winds and the rending of the mountains and the fire and the earthquakes, but a total stranger to the still small voice. God reacquainted Elijah with the still small voice. When he was in the depths of his spiritual depression, God came to him in all his gentle gentleness. Perhaps you need to be restored to sweet intimacy with God this morning. Our God is a gentle God. If you would see his gentleness, look in the face of Jesus Christ who is Gentle in the manger, gentle with the grieving, gentle with sinners, gentle with children, gentle when he came riding on a donkey, kingly, into Jerusalem. And Jesus Christ will be gentle with you as well, gentle with the diseases of your body, with the wounds of your soul and the sins of your heart. This is what Christ says to us this morning in a still, small voice. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, like Elijah, would surely cower and tremble in the presence of your glory. And so we give you praise that you speak to us so sweetly and gently that we might be drawn to you. We come to you in the midst of our discouragement and ask that you would deal gently with us for Jesus' sake. Amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. 
The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse in the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.